The following audio discussion is from episode 5 of Astound's podcast series, AI and the Future of Work. This episode, entitled Truth from the Trenches, a six-time CIO discusses the future of IT, features host Dan Turchin, co-founder and chief product officer at Astound, and guest Mark Settle, CIO of Okta. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. This is Dan Turchin coming to you live from headquarters of Astound in Menlo Park, California. Uh, I'm your host of AI and the Future of Work, and I'm so excited to be joined today by a friend of mine, a special guest, Mark Settle, who's a multi-multi-time CIO and has certainly taught me a lot about uh, what it's like to run an IT organization at scale. I hope uh, we can all benefit from a little bit of Mark Settle wisdom. Uh, Mark, before we jump into the conversation, welcome and please introduce yourself. Well, I'm happy to be here today. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, I am a seven-time CIO. I sometimes tell people that I'm going to keep doing the job until I get it right, you know, and uh, I'm introduced frequently in public forums, you know, and people uh, credit me for the link to my career and the diversity of my career. My wife has a completely different perspective. She thinks I have a hard time keeping a job, you know, for an extended period of time. But I think I've beaten the averages, the, the industry-wide averages. But you're leading technical teams, so I imagine if the balance Credibility. You have to establish credibility with technical teams, but like you said, you're first and foremost a, a people manager, not a technologist. How do you keep the balance? So you want to ask all the right questions, you know, and force people to maybe think about things or think about things in ways that they haven't to date. And that's where you really bring your experience to bear. Um, but you've got to be very careful. Another common mistake that, uh, that CIOs make is uh, they come and talk to you know, different vendors or go to conferences and fall in love with certain technologies and almost make a snap judgment that this would be good for us. And then they kind of bring that back to their own team. Uh, and, and it takes a long time in many cases for the team to embrace the same, the idea with the same enthusiasm or maybe the same insights that the leader does. So that has to be very carefully stage managed, you know, how you, how you get your own team involved and kind of lead them to maybe a perspective that you want them to share. But anyway, it's just been my overall observation that, you know, judgments uh, from the top frequently fail, frequently fail. One of the things that's interesting about your career arc is that you've been a CIO at both technology companies and kind of high tech and low tech. Um, what's the difference? What's it like to be on both sides? Well, that's a tough question. Um, well, every, every, IT organization is obviously a technology organization. Um, you know, when you work on the vendor side of the industry, there's probably, uh, and, and if you work in the Bay Area, there's just a lot more receptivity to change and innovation. And, and it's not because the people are necessarily more enlightened or more um, imaginative or creative, but in most cases, they don't carry around, you know, the the years of legacy systems that have been developed. So I mean, most, if you go to work for most Fortune 500 companies, the application portfolio or the data centers that are still there, it's like your grandmother's attic, right? And I always kind of kid people, nobody in their right mind would ever design the application portfolio that exists at most Fortune 500 companies. And, and it's not to say that the decisions were wrong at the time they were taken. There were you know, tactical and situational reasons why this ERP system was implemented or why this 
kind of new tools brought in or where we outsource this part of the operation to a third party uh, managed service provider. So but that's what you inherit. So you kind of show up and the, um, the, the tech companies tend to be a little bit younger in general, especially obviously in the Bay Area, and they're not, they're less um, weighed down by that whole you know, legacy of, of technology decisions. One of the things that I find fascinating about the role of the CIO is the generational shift in the workplace. So we hear a lot just kind of in the pocket of the press about the demands of millennials and um, just, you know, this kind of a popular narrative about what a millennial expects versus maybe an old generation. Um, what does that mean? How does that impact the role of an IT organization? So it's the workday is not a 24 by 7 phenomenon, and it's not bounded by time or geography. Uh, I, I tend to think about, you know, when people are in the workplace, I think the laptop still remains a primary tool for most people, but it's complemented to an increasing degree by smartphones and other devices that individuals use interchangeably. And, and then when they leave the workplace, the, the smartphone actually becomes the primary tool of interaction. People check email, do approvals, and actually do increasingly substantive kind of things over time um, through applications that are on their smartphone. So you, know, you have to be able to support that, that whole range of applications. And then another obvious trend, um, which has become more pervasive, is the proliferation of collaboration tools. And I think up till now, a lot of the collaboration that I've witnessed has been primarily focused internal to the company. When there are so many you know, ancillary stakeholders involved in the business, whether it's contractors or consultants or managed service providers or go-to-market partners you know, that have need to get access systems or data and systems. Uh, and then you have the members of the staff, the functional staff, that are interacting with their colleagues, you know, in, in these kind of entities, these external entities. So information is being passed all the time through uh, different kind of collaboration tools. And that's that's really the workplace of the future is, is this kind of nest of collaboration capabilities. And you're familiar, uh, Dan, with the ones that, you know, some of the common ones that we have here. So Zoom has become, you know, a very kind of standard video conferencing capability. Slack and HipChat to a lesser degree. I mean, there's uh, multiple texting tools that people use. Uh, there's ways to... Uh, share files through a box or a Dropbox kind of a service, et cetera. So it's just a very flexible kind of workspace in which people, you know, if you remember influence diagrams, people used to map like, who do I talk to during the day and who are the most people I interact with? Well, those, those have mushroomed because of the technology, right? And so now an influence diagram, maybe I'm going to make this, these numbers up, but I mean, maybe five years ago, you know, my primary influence cloud would have been possibly like 60 people. Well, Today, it could be 200 people, easily 200 people, or easily 250 people, um, just because of the technology. So that, that pervasive collaboration that's occurring, I think, is, it really defines the modern workplace. And the millennials, to a large degree, are driving this because you know, they're, they're more prone to use those tools than a lot of other people. Yeah. So um, the workplace is now kind of always on, right. 24 by 7, oftentimes geographically dispersed. Um, how do you, as a CIO, how do you staff up for that or how, you know, how, how do you provide the services to accommodate the expectation that IT is always available? So I've talked to other CIOs about this. This is interesting um, to me. Um, I had another CIO tell me, tell me they were renovating their offices and he said, I want to really provide a Starbucks capability. I mean, I want Wi-Fi everywhere. I have to be always on. I want people to be able to just walk anywhere in our facility connect and get to everything that they need to do their job. 
and I want it to be as frictionless uh, as if they were in a Starbucks or a United Club or that kind of an environment. And so a lot of the, you know, conventional um, kind of command and control ways we think about laying out networks and managing firewalls and, you know, security are to some degree antiquated. I mean, some safeguards need to be in place. I'm not saying the safeguards aren't necessary, but you've really got to accommodate that kind of new um, working style. So that's on the infrastructure side. And then the thing that's interesting on the, on the application support, the collaboration tools actually enable a lot of more kind of self-support. And, and what I mean by that is, <laughs> this is embarrassing to admit as an IT leader, um, but there could be individuals, there are frequently individuals who would encounter some kind of an IT-related problem, whether it was application or infrastructure uh, related, whose first uh, uh, course of repeal would be to their coworkers. I could call IT, but it'd be so much easier just to send Dan, you know, like a little uh, little Slack note, like, I'm having this problem, like, have you brought into this? Are you having, yes. Uh, yeah, but it's like self-service. I mean, it's self, self-remediation, self Healing, it's self-healing it too, right? Mm-hmm. Because people go out to go find um, colleagues that are <laughs> similar situations. In fact, this is a funny story. Um, when I was in a company where we implemented uh, Salesforce.com's texting tool called Chatter, and uh, different groups would start to mushroom, like chatter groups, right? And some chatter groups were public and some were uh, private and you were invited in. So I discovered after about three months of chatter that people that had worked from home had created their own private chatter group, and they were solving their home-based IT problems. And I got I got access to this chatter trail, and a, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, the entries would say like, "Don't call IT. Here's what you do." And another one would say, "If you call IT, they'll tell you, tell you to do these four things. Don't do the third thing that they tell you to do. You don't need to do that." I mean, undermine. It was a subterranean, you know, yeah, community of people that were. Um, but they were solving their own problems, you know, in, in ways that may have been more efficient than our ability to do so. So that's that's the challenge. So another unique challenge I'd imagine it's faced by the modern CIO is this um, desire on the part of, or expectation on the part of the employee that information and systems are available anytime, anywhere, and an obligation that CIO and maybe your, your CISO counterpart has to protect employee information, particularly in the face of GDPR and various regulations. How do you create an environment that um, encourages the kind of access that employees need while still keeping them safe? So I've been thinking a lot about this lately. So if you recall, um, there was a popular concept that we talked about a lot in the past, uh, which was north-south and east-west traffic in a data center. So north-south traffic referred to bad actors coming in through networks, getting into your server farm and our, our storage devices um, and potentially exfiltrating data directly. And so there's different access controls as far as getting into those um, kind of assets. And then east-west traffic was like, referred to the fact that if they get in, they may not go to the most obvious place, but they want to proliferate laterally and go and you know reside for a long period of time in some other kind of ancillary device that, that may not be obvious to people trying to defend the perimeter and then sit there for a while and then start slowly exfiltrating data or doing other kind of things. So, you know, there are a lot of tools out there today in you know, a world in which um, most of the applications are cloud-based that worry about access to the cloud applications, which is kind of the north-south traffic. If you think, so in my mind, I've replaced the, the imagery of the data center 
with you know this imagery of cloud applications that are all integrated with each other, kind of like a nest, if you will, of, of um, cloud tools. So there are access controls to get into the tools, but then you have these collaboration capabilities. And so I, as easily as I can send you a Slack message um, asking for help with some kind of IT problem, I can download an Excel report from a SOX system and shoot it over to you in marketing, you know, and say, look at what's going on over here. And so, you know, the east-west traffic in the cloud is all enabled, uh, is primarily enabled by these collaboration tools. And it's very insidious. Nobody is intentionally doing something wrong. It just seems like an expeditious kind of thing to do at the end of the day. But that's the new frontier to me is, is thinking about the way the collaboration tools create this kind of east-west proliferation of data and secure information. So what, um, what's your partnership been like with, with CISOs? Do, do you find, are you, are you often taking the side of the argument that information wants to be free or, or that, you know, that your role is to enforce the compliance frameworks that the CISO needs? So I've had great relationships with CISOs. Um, first and foremost, the CISO establishes the policies, right? And IT and other organizations put in place the operational controls um, and then the, the corresponding work, work procedures and work rules that, that implement the controls. And the, really the conversation becomes, I guess, adequacy, if you will. So if I understand the policy and I establish these controls and they get blessed and the CISO and I agree, well, that's sufficient to enforce the policy. And then you deconstruct the controls into the actual you know, work processes and procedures that you're going to follow. As long as you had those handshakes along the way, you know, then, then I think things work uh, extremely well. And one of the, the organizational issues that you run into is whether the CISO is going to manage sort of policy and compliance and operations, security operations, or whether the security operations piece is going to come over to IT. But um, yeah, but that, that's my experience. The CISOs have primarily um, you know, worried about the, the policy and compliance issues. It's an ongoing debate, not just in the Valley, but really uh, everywhere in, uh, in every industry, ongoing about the future of work, and specifically in IT, um, what's not whether or not automation is a good thing, but what's the right amount of automation, what roles were at risk, but maybe the corollary, um, what, what new functions will be introduced by, by AI kind of capabilities? Where, where do you sit in, in this argument? So I, I, at the highest level, um, I think automation is a survival skill. Because if you step back, the, the talent pool that we have to leverage is shrinking all the time relative to the demand. And you can go to a tremendous, you know, there's an umpteen number of reports that will show you that the number of people that are coming out with any kind of a degree in computer science or a related field, or even out of kind of vocational programs where they're, you know, they're being instructed in programming tools or database administration. So, you know, the pool that we're all competing for is shrinking. And I think the mistake that people have made in the past with automation, which plays out time and time again, I mean, what happens in most situations? So, so there's a small team of people that have to perform some kind of a functional task within IT or outside IT. And if the company's successful um, or it acquires other companies, you know, the, the number of transactions or the number of times the process needs to be exercised grows over time. So pretty soon that core group of people, which does everything, the kind of hard use cases and the intermediate ones and simple ones, says, let's get some junior people in here to do the simple stuff because, you know, we just can't handle the workload. So you do that for a while and saves a little bit of money and provides a progression path. And you grow a little bit more and you say, you know, this really isn't working <laughs> anymore. 
you know, maybe we could go outsource some piece of this. Like maybe we can find somebody who just would do this for us as a service. We don't have to, and it still keeps growing. Then finally at the end, people start to think, maybe we could automate some part of this. Like what part of it could we automate away? And I think, you know, RPA vendors, the robotic process automation vendors are onto something here conceptually. You really should think about automating first. So even in that, that initial stage, that evolutionary stage I was talking about, you know, if there was, if there were 20% of the use cases that could be automated in some fashion, you should jump on that immediately and get that work out of there. But what happens human, in human nature is people like to be able to fall back on things that they can do easily and predictably. So to keep their own performance metrics up, they kind of hold on to those easy and simple things, right? So that they can say, geez, sure, we had some hard things that took us a lot longer to, to complete, but look at how, you know, look at our batting average. Our batting average is, is fabulous, <laughs> you know, but the, yeah, there's, it's all those sort of it takes longer and it's harder for us to do. So, so I think the RPA guys are totally onto that. And I think that you're leading me to a conclusion, which I've already got through my own mind, which is um, machine learning is going to, those kind of tools will pop up in all kinds of, you know, amazing and remarkable places. Uh, we share common philosophy. Yeah. But I, I think it's a survival. I don't think it's discretionary. I mean, I don't think you can wait and, I mean, go back to some of the big Fortune 500 companies you're talking about. If you have a staff of, thousand people in IT and you've got 500 systems and there's new technologies coming in all the time, you know, what else are you going to do? But, you know, if you don't, if you don't embrace automation and look for those opportunities. And I think the mistake a lot of IT shops make, you really need a center of excellence in the shop to come up with the tools and be able to reuse some of the things that you've done in the past. If you just turn the whole organization loose and don't go, you know, you figure it out, you know, everywhere. Uh, and you're not going to get to the same uh, result. Yeah. Yeah, well, well said. So um, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, plug your books and recognize uh, yes, you would be. Yeah, 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 be remiss. <laughs> so Mark is an accomplished author, so published uh, a few years back, uh, Truth from the Trenches, about uh, kind of IT management principles, and then there's a forthcoming, if, yes. I, may, if I may tease it, uh, Truth from the Valley. And one of the themes that, uh, that I love that, that, that you talk about is... Uh, uh, it seems obvious when you make the point, but nobody goes to school to learn IT. And it really influences kind of the culture of IT and as a leader, you know, what it means to build an org where, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's not like finance. It's not like marketing, right? Nobody has a degree in, in IT. Um, talk us through kind of your philosophy on that and how, how that has influenced the way you've grown organizations. So I think of IT leadership jobs as having three dimensions. One is... Political, frankly, you have to develop effective working relationships with other peers, regardless whether you're a director in the organization, a vice president, or, or a C-level executive. You have to partner with the business. You cannot, you know, help really do revolutionary. You can make IT more efficient to the nth degree, uh, but that reaches a point of you know, diminishing returns after a while. So, you know, relationships with um, third party, with your with your people, your friends in the business, your partners in the business. And the second is, by definition, you're a change agent because you're the technologist in the company and technology is changing all the time. And <laughs> you're a change agent because some of your technology is going away. Like the vendors don't produce anymore. It's not well supported. So there's no such thing as a status quo person, you know, over a um, long period of time. Then you've got your own team and you have to lead the team, you know, as well. So, so the people that succeed, you know, find ways of developing those, those skills. And one thing I do counsel people to do at the end of every year, um, everybody in IT worries about development. 
at any level. Like, you know, am I learning new things? Am I grooming myself for advancement opportunities? And I counsel anybody who is interested in rising through the ranks at the end of every year, kind of put together a little report card. And I think there's kind of three, three dimensions of experience, experiential learning that are very important. So the first is in technology. So you could say, well, this past year, I've either broadened or deepened my technical skills and capabilities, which is kind of an obvious one. Um, the second one, which is maybe not so obvious, and unfortunately some people take this, um, uh, don't appreciate the importance of this, is learning more about the business, like how the business actually operates. You know, how does the sales function actually operate? How do we find leads, qualified leads? How does it, you know, the end-to-end -end, um, um, knowledge of some of the key business processes? That's hugely valuable when you think about downstream job opportunities. And the third is the ability to work with and influence people. So perhaps you led a virtual project team. Perhaps you had a project where you had a strong dependency on a, on a team in Europe or Asia, you know, that, that had a different kind of both cultural mix and um, sort of time zones and geography challenges and getting something done. And you had to you know, learn how to operate in this kind of an environment. So I think at the end of the year, if you can say, well, you know, my people uh, influence your management skills or my technical skills or business knowledge was appreciably, appreciably improved, then I've been developed. I mean, I've had a developmental experience. And unfortunately, people normally think, well, you know, crap, that's what the company made me do. You know, like the, the CIO went and bought this new tool, so when he sent me to training on the tool, and, and they put me on this crazy project where I had to get up early in the morning and talk to people in Europe two times a week, whatever. And I didn't get to go to my favorite course, and you know that's how I that's how I measure development. I wanted to really go off and you know I want to go to this conference or, or whatever. Um, and that's the the misperception or the fallacy or the mistake I think a lot of people make is people you you really learn through experiential learning. That's you as we all know. You can go to a training course. But if you're not going to put that into practice within the next seven days when you come back, it's largely an exercise in industrial tourism. You know, you just got away from the office for a week and met some interesting people. And that's about it. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, I think. Good answer. What inspired you to write the second book, Truth and Valley? So Truth and Valley, the premise of, of the book is that there are ways that we have approached um, people management and technology management and process management in these cloud-native startup companies in the Bay Area that uh, I think kind of serve as uh, harbingers or precursors of some of the challenges that people uh, in other parts of the country and really the world are going to experience over time. And so that sounds you know very, very ambiguous, but I'm specifically referring to things like, you know, the talent challenge that we talked about before. So the machinations we go through here, as you well know, to identify and attract and recruit and develop and retain talent um, is really exceptionally challenging and, and doesn't always exist in other parts of the world. Same thing with processes. You know, you think about, we all talk about security, um, but most of the cloud native companies here in the Valley, security is a do or die capability. I mean, you can't sell product unless you can convince people that you have a highly secure environment and people aspire to a lot of certifications that they can publicly display to uh, prove that to prospects. Um, and that's just, I'm kind of cherry picking here, but there are a number of different dimensions of the way that we routinely do business. Some of the more obvious ones are the proliferation of SaaS-based applications to run the business and the complete abstraction of infrastructure over time. So you'd asked before about what are some of the skills that are coming and going. And it's pretty obvious, I think, that, you know, 
our construction skills are becoming more devalued over time. Now, construction skills are important if you're building software-based products that are going to generate revenue for the company. But that's I'm putting that in kind of a different um, bucket of activity, right? But as far as a classic IT organization that's managing the business applications that run the business every day, there's not a whole lot of software engineers running around building, you know, you know one-of-a-kind um, business applications. There's nothing that unique anymore. And and the other thing that um, that um, argues against doing that is the explosion of SaaS tools. I mean, no, in a way, no niche is too small, right? I mean, there's there's a tool for registering people at conferences and letting them design their their schedules at the conference. You know, like these, there's just a there's just a massive assortment of tools that are out there. So for any IT group to say, oh gee, that'd be easy for us to knock out some application like that. It just makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, so nobody does it anymore. Um, but it's those it's those kind of things that seem commonplace here. But I think. Um, uh, we definitely are, and I've traveled quite a bit in the country, and I've talked to a lot of other CIOs, and to varying degrees, you know, many other organizations are just encountering these things for the first time, and maybe don't appreciate the scale at which, you know, like it's the leading edge of the wave, you know, they haven't really seen the wave break in question, so hopefully the book will give them a, a chance to think a little more okay. deeply about those issues. Hope all of our listeners read it. As soon as it's out. Exactly. Uh, Mark, we've got uh, time for one last question. And this is what I'm, I'm eager to get your answer here. What's the advice that you'd give to an earlier version of yourself? I had worked for several companies before I worked um, for a company that sold IT products and services to IT, so to speak, the vendor side, the vendor side of the industry. And I actually think I had a kind of condescending attitude about the vendor side. So I thought that uh, I got a lot of self-worth and, and self-reward from thinking about being the buyer and aggregator of all these capabilities and putting them into the service of the business model or the objectives of the companies that I work for. And I <laughs> learned a lot by getting on the other side of the equation and understanding how vendors actually build product, um, how different capabilities come together on the vendor side through the acquisition process. And uh, the sales process and so you know i've always been on the buying side it's very interesting and instructive to be on the selling side as well so i, if I was going to do anything over again and, and give a younger mark some advice i would i suggest that he or she um avoid some of that initial condescension attitude and and think seriously about maybe uh, spending some time on the other side actually i think going back and forth would be a very healthy kind of way of managing career and I've done that a little bit towards the latter stages of my career. Mark, this is fascinating. I feel like we're just getting started. We're just getting started. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, when you write that third book, we'll have, we'll have you back. We'll be uh, we'll be reminiscing about the two from the valley. Um, such a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, again, thank you to our special guest, Mark Settle. Uh, and uh, thank you for listening.